Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 18th of October, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Uh, well, hello, David. We are going to start with the um, sad news about the stabbing of Sir David Amos. And uh, we've had a look a lot across quite a bit of the material from the old media, as we call the previously known as mainstream media. Uh, so we've got the BBC News report here, Sir David Amos stabbing, uh, what we know so far. Now, this was a particularly interesting article for a number of reasons, and we thought we'd take a little bit of time to take our viewers and listeners through that. This is uh, some of the comment, and a man is identified very quickly in the article. The man's name is Ali Harbour Ali, and uh, he is a British man of Somali heritage. And uh, that um, <coughs> we've got a comment here from the BBC News. Um, we don't quite know where they got this from, but it says Ali Harbour Ali was referred to the counter-terrorist prevent scheme some years ago, but was never a formal subject of interest to MI5. Um, so that was of interest to us. Uh, they went on to say that Ali Harvey's Ali's father, Harvey Ali Kulain, was previously an advisor to Somalia's prime minister. Uh, but he's he's been visited by police and uh, they've taken his phone for analysis. Now, we also had a look across some other reports here at this particular point. This is Sky News. Sir David Amos murder, terror suspect accused of killing MP, his son, a former top aide to Somali Prime Minister. And then there was a comment from uh, the father. He said he was not OK. He was traumatised. As, as a result of the events um, with his son. This has nothing to do with my work for the Somali government. And uh, if we have a look at uh, this report here from The Telegraph, father of alleged jihadi sus suspected of killing Sir David Amos had himself faced Islamist threats. And this uh, has got a reference through to the organisation Al-Shabaab, uh, and uh, it's talking about that organisation um, in Somalia and how their status was in, increased uh, about 10 years ago. So they were regarded as, uh, as dangerous people. So very quickly, the whole idea of a terrorist incident was being uh, ramped up in these reports. But let's come back to the BBC and uh, we can go down a different avenue, which is particularly interesting. So this is John Lamb, a councillor from Southend-on-Sea. And he's quoted and he's talking about the two ladies who had been with Sir David and gone into the uh, constituency uh, meeting with him. So he said one was in the room with Sir David taking notes. All of a sudden there was a scream from her because the person deliberately whipped out a knife and started stabbing David. The other lady who was getting names from people outside, she came running in and saw poor David had been stabbed. So that sets the scene. Uh, but then he also went on to say this. We knew it must have been very serious because the paramedics have been working on Sir David for over two and a half hours and they hadn't got him on the way to hospital. 
Now, I was quite intrigued by this statement. The man's been stabbed. The paramedics are there. He obviously needed serious treatment very, very quickly. Um, let's put a timeline together from the BBC reports, and we, we end up with this. So at 11.50, Sir David was chatting and laughing with locals on the church steps. At 12.05, he walked into the church alongside two female members of staff. At 12.08, I've put in there approximately because the reports are just after 12. So uh, just, sorry, just after he walked in, uh, he was attacked. So we've made an assumption there at 12.08, approximately, uh, Sir David was stabbed. At 12.15, the police arrive and immediately arrest a man. So that side progresses very quickly. Uh, but the next report from the BBC is that at 14.13, an air ambulance arrives at the nearby sports ground. Paramedics remain at the scene. And then we've got at 14.55, from a report shortly before 1500, Essex police said Sir David had died at the scene. And if we have a look at the geography around this, and we've taken the map out of the uh, BBC report, um, so we've got uh, Belfair's uh, Methodist uh, Church, uh, that was the church hall where he was holding his meeting, and you can see that that's over to the west of Southend-on-Sea. Um, now, what caught my attention was the question, really, why this man didn't go to hospital. Um, if we look at ambulance service providers around that area, there's five of them. Uh, very roughly, they're all within five miles. They're probably a lot closer than that of the location at which he was stabbed. And we've also got uh, the air ambulance, which is based at North Weald Airfield, that's about 28 miles away. We had a quick look at the, the maximum speed of that helicopter, and it's only about nine minutes flying. Um, so the helicopter did get there, but very late in proceedings. Question, why was it called? Uh, we tried to find out a little bit more detail about the local hospital. Southend University Hospital is clearly the closest, only about four miles away, possibly five miles away. I attempted to speak to them this morning, uh, but rapidly ended up in an automated queue on that hospital's telephone system. And eventually it told me that I was 21 in the queue. Uh, so I obviously wasn't going to be able to speak to anybody. I tried their media team, uh, but nobody was answering the phone for the NHS Mid and South Essex team. So that had to be abandoned. So we come back to really these key questions. Did it really take nearly two and a half hours to get an ambulance to Sir David Amos? That's one question, but uh, we can say, was a paramedic ambulance already on scene? That seems to be indicated, but if that was the case, why did it never take him to hospital? And we're not talking a few minutes, we're talking approximately two hours. And then was the air ambulance actually called because there was no road ambulance available? So we don't know the answer to that one either. But we can also ask, was his death preventable if he'd been taken to an A in the in time? And I think that that question is, is the, really the key one because we know at the moment that many people who need to go to hospital or need somebody who suffered an accident to, to be taken to hospital simply can't get an an accident. An Dave, ambulance. Uh, sorry, get an ambulance for that. So something has happened to them. Try to get an ambulance on scene. It's very difficult. 
Um, David, what's your thoughts? Because these problems with ambulances now are occurring north and south of the border. Well, like you, I, I thought this was very strange. Two and a half hours and still at the scene and still working on him. Um, I mean, my, my training in first aid is, is out of date now. Uh, but uh, you're talking about a process of, of getting the, the, the casualty stabilised in such a way that they can be that he can be transferred to hospital. Now, that has to happen first, but two and a half hours just seems ex an extremely long time to continue that process if it's, if it's failing. Um, so someone with more experience of these things than I would need to comment on that. In terms of the availability of ambulances, I mean, we know that the army's been called in in Scotland and in Wales to support the ambulance service, which was failing. Um, partly because ambulance service staff had been sent to do things like COVID testing and um, partly because of the, uh, the, the people not being at on post because of the regulations surrounding COVID. Um, so the, the, whole, the whole process, the whole service is, is, is in crisis. I'm not aware of the situation in London. Obviously, London's a, a different case. It's a huge metropolitan area, many hospitals, very high population density, um, somewhat different from either Scotland and, or Wales. Um, but uh, perhaps, perhaps they are experiencing similar problems. It's certainly uh, it's something we should look into. Yes, and if any, anybody out there is medically trained or working with the ambulance service and they can give us more information or a professional viewpoint on what actually took place, we would be very interested to know. But certainly uh, across the UK as a whole at the moment, we know it's very difficult for people to get ambulances to, to an accident. Um, well, of course, the main thrust of the press was to draw in the fact that this was terrorist-related and uh, here we've got the uh, New Scotland Yard report. This is taken from their website. So it said that the uh, fatal stabbing in Leon C has tonight been declared as a terrorist incident with the investigation being led by counter-terrorism policing. So this is, all, this is all gloss, isn't it? Ramping up the fact that it's terror. It's being put under the control of the terrorist um, command of the Met Police. And uh, if we go further on in the report, which it says here, the early investigation has revealed a, quote, potential motivation linked to Islamist extremism. So um, big screaming headline that this is all uh, terrorism. But when we get into the text itself, we see that there's, there's possibly there's a potential motivation. Um, I'd just like to remind people that the report did say um, that the man himself had been looked at briefly by the Prevent Strategy. Uh, the UK column has been warning for many years of the danger of this uh, Prevent Strategy and the wider policy, uh, because it means that virtually anybody can be labelled as a potential target, depending on information which has come through the NHS or education system or mental health or the local authority. Um, so we're very interested to know why this has suddenly been flagged up uh, with the with the man accused of the stabbing at the moment. Um, so this was UK column report from the 10th of September 2018. And uh, we were 
highlighting the fact that there was supplementary information to the prevent duty guidance for England and Wales. And this was our old friend, it should be Bob Wallace there. Ben. Ben, Ben. Yeah, I knew it was wrong. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, Ben Wallace, uh, uh, Minister of State for Security. And if people are still not aware of this prevent strategy, uh, then have a look at the documentation yourself. Have a look at the fact that it works throughout society. So here for objective three, supporting sectors and institutions where there are risks of rad radicalization, uh, we've got everything. We've got the education, we've got the internet, we've got faith inst institutions and organizations, health, criminal justice, uh, charitable sector, and overseas. And of course, it was our very own Theresa May MP who got very, very excited with pushing this uh, policy forward. And she says here, uh, in her own words, I'd like to pay tribute to Lord uh, Carlisle of Berriou, who, who has provided independent oversight for the review. He agrees that this is a sound strategy for preventing the threat of homegrown terrorism. And I believe it's a strategy that will serve us well for many years to come. Well, I think the jury's out on this one because, of course, if this man had been flagged up by Prevent, it hadn't stopped him if indeed it, he did carry out uh, what he uh, appears to be charged with. And uh, we just throw this one in that on the back of the terrorism, of course, the fear has been ramped up with the BBC, who's made particularly big of Joe Cox with uh, a whole raft of quotes from Joe Cox's husband. Um, because he had a physical reaction to the killing. I think you've got more to say on the press, David. Uh, yes, just one thing on the prevent document. I was just looking at it as you, as you were going through it there. When they wrote this, they, dis they discussed um, the following categories of the threat. International terrorism, Northern Ireland, Ireland terrorism and extreme right-wing terrorism and other. So the, they're, they're classifying uh, all uh, violent Islamism as international terrorism. Um, now, we'll come to that in a moment because that's not how the BBC were characterising things. Uh, so here we have the BBC. Um, Sir David Ames' death, um, show kindness and love, say MP's family. The family of MP Sir David Amos said that their hearts were shattered as they called on people to set aside hatred and work towards togetherness. The Conservative MP was stabbed multiple times during a meeting in its constituency in Essex on Friday. A 25-year-old British man has been held under the Terrorism Act. The uh, BBC were unique in this, in describing uh, the perpetrator as a British man and making no reference to Somali origins. Uh, the... Uh, uh, Islamist faith or anything else. It was just British, so he was domestic. That, that's how the BBC were trying to paint it, which is very strange. Uh, I do have, and we might get a chance to talk about it an extra time, I do have some concerns about this, the show Kindness and Love, because we don't really know what we're talking about yet, or what we're showing it to. I understand the family's reaction, but um, that's maybe something we can explore a little while uh, in extra time. Um, the political and press response has been quite varied as people have tried to get a handle on this. It's clearly taken a lot of people by surprise. It, Brian Teeth writing in The Scotsman 
uh, concentrates on the political, because he's a politician, it's been called, on the political um, discourse. He says, our politicians must dial down the bile. He writes, have you heard of David Amos before Friday? Would you have been able to describe him as an MP of 38 years, 19 in 2015, for his undoubted commitment to public service, helping mostly local causes, whether he believed in them personally or not? Uh, so he goes on and points out he's a devout Catholic uh, and socially conservative. Um, I would point out one of the odd things about this, um, about the events at the scene, was this devout Catholic who spent two and a half hours being treated, a priest came up uh, to offer to give him the last rites, which, which is very important in the, in the Roman Catholic faith. The priest wasn't allowed through. The police barred entry to the police, to the, to the priest. And I think that's also a little disturbing sign that we're seeing a society that that doesn't value faith and doesn't value um, uh, what people's wishes would be. They they value rules. The rules say no. So uh, that, that, David, that if, was... I, if I can just uh, if I can just interrupt there one second. I mean, what you say is right, but uh, uh, there was also quite a lot of. Uh, uh, incorrect reporting, particularly by the Daily Mail over that. And the, the priest then got onto, well, he felt the need to get onto his Twitter account with a, a little video clip to explain uh, that a little mm -hmm. bit. So so the priest the, the priest was was absolutely, uh, whether you agree with it or not, was was supporting the, the decision of the police on the ground and, and, and not letting him in. Um, so uh, so he was critic very critical of the Daily Mail and their reporting of that. But anyway, I just wanted to, to make that point quickly. Okay. Uh, the Scotsman here goes on and says he, he accepted Tony Blair's uh, argument on the threat of weapons of mass destruction, like so many colleagues, but then following the failure to find any substantial threat, was in a small group who supported the impeachment of Blair the following year and later uh, voted against the bombing of Syria. So that, do, that does speak extremely highly of him. And this, the Scotsman, in this area of, of the, the nature of the political debate, uh, comments only a fortnight before Labour Deputy Leader Angela Rayner had spoken uh, with pejorative intent about Tory scum and was defended by many as this having justification. And, and whilst at the general election of 2019, um, Nicola Sturgeon and George Square had said that no Tory is ever going to be allowed to change the open and diverse Scotland. Um, so the, the 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 pointing at Scotsman, you're pointing out the hypocrisy of that statement that we're we're welcoming and diverse unless you're Tory, in which case your your views are anathema and are disgusting, um, and the, so the Scotsman does make a valid point about this, but of course, as things have unravelled, it doesn't seem that it's been the 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 coarsening of the political debate that's actually generated this. It's not been the bile harmful though that is, that's been poured out uh, over the political, um, over, you know, through the political debate in recent years that has motivated this as far as we know at the moment. Uh, Spiked takes a different view. They say nasty tweets did not kill David Amos, um, nor did Angela Rayner, nor did anonymous trolls. Um, and this response to suspected is Islamist murder is absurd. Uh, so they're taking very much that this is, we're a deeply confused nation, a committed public servant has been killed in a suspected terrorist attack, but because it appears to be the wrong kind of terrorism, um, the one that for the great and the good they feel some reason uh, deeply uncomfortable talking about, uh, then it's not being discussed. And I think this is also a good point. 
Um, he continues, everyone's at it. Only in the media around this morning, Home Secretary Priti Patel said she was considering removing the right to anonymity on social media. So again, this is a, a Spike here makes a good point that there's, a, there's now attention going again on social media and on how people are behaving on social media as though that were responsible when it doesn't seem to be. And the real core of it, if it is, um, Islamic-inspired terrorism, that's something that there is no mature debate in this country about, certainly not in the press and certainly not in Parliament. Uh, in fact, it's an area that cannot be touched. The Guardian explains why it can't be touched. They're immediately going to the hashtag NotAllMuslims line. Um, UK Muslim groups brace for rise in hate crime after killing of David Amos. Um, They've updated safety guidance and reports of threats against some British Somalis since the de death of the South End, South End MP. Um, so the Guardian goes through comments like uh, speaking to a, a representative of Somali organisations. Our own social media has been rife with hatred. Um, and uh, he condemned the killing as, attack, as an attack on democracy. That's another one I'd like to explore in extra time. I don't think that's a particular ac particularly accurate statement either. And, and I want to just compare the huge amount of attention this has gotten, and rightly so, rightly got, and it is a terrible tragedy, uh, but, but it's not the only one. So the same weekend with a boy of 14, uh, stabbed to death in a, in Glasgow. So this was uh, th this this took place at High Street Station in broad daylight. Fourteen year old boy uh, on the the old blue train line out from Glasgow to the suburbs, and uh, he he was he was killed. Uh, there was CCTV of the of of what happened. So the police were very uh, quick, and they have made an arrest. Uh, and that rested another teenager, teen 16, arrested after the alleged murder of Justin McLaughlin in High Street, Glasgow. See, here you see the young 14-year-old boy. Um, and uh, the police said that one arrest had been made. Inquiries are ongoing um, uh, following the arrest. So we'll be following that story as well. And I, th I think it is worth pointing out that there are many stabbings and many tragedies. And they all deserve... Um, they all deserve attention, not because it's an attack on a democracy, but because human life has value. Uh, indeed. Well, in the meantime, David, uh, the government felt the need uh, to push uh, a media advisory notice out regarding the death of Sir David Amos. Uh, and it says the following. Uh, following the arrest of a man in London on Friday the 15th of October, the Attorney General reminds editors, publishers and social media users uh, for the that for the purpose of the Contempt of Court Act 1981, proceedings are active and the strict liability rule under the Act therefore applies. Uh, in particular, the Attorney General wishes to draw attention to the risks in publishing material, including online, that asserts or assumes expressly or implicitly the guilt of any of those arrested or that otherwise interferes with the administration of justice in this case. For example, allegations of wrongdoing of any individual arrested in relation to the matter. Uh, the Attorney General's office will be monitoring the, covering, the coverage of these proceedings. Editors, publishers and social media users are reminded of their responsibilities under the Act and should take legal advice to ensure they're in a position to fully comply with the obligations imposed by the Act. Uh, so, David, I find that particularly interesting. Um, obviously, there, everybody has the right to be a, a presumption of innocence. 
but I wonder why they feel the need to, to uh, publish this about this particular incident. It is strange, and it's pointing at social media as well. Is, are, are we going to see uh, comments on social media prosecuted under this in the same way that a media organisation would be? I wonder. Um, well, we're just going to have a quick advertising break here, and then we're going to come on to maybe answer that a bit more. So uh, if you do like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us and your support would very much appreciated, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community, and there are options to help us out there. Uh, and also share our material on the various platforms um, where you see it. And that would be uh, fantastically appreciated as well. Yeah, indeed. Uh, now, uh, David, uh, via the spiked article mentioned comments by Priti Patel. Um, let's just have a listen to them briefly. Some people have been saying, actually prior to Friday, but certainly in the last two days, that part of what's happened here is that politics itself has become coarser, that there's uh, been a language which homes in on particular individuals, and you yourself have been, I think, the subject of pretty um, unpleasant commentary and attacks and so on. Do you think that there is a problem with politics itself, in particular the House of Commons, in the way that MPs talk to and about each other? that has produced an atmosphere in which this kind of violence can take place? Well, I think, first of all, this isn't just about the House of Commons. This is about wider public discourse. And I would also go as far to say social media, anonymity on social media, where, where members of parliament are subject to some of the most cruel comments, attacks, um, and they are relentless. Many of them are relentless. I've, my colleagues go through just some of the most appalling attacks I've seen online, Ooh. and I have as well. But Trevor, you've asked specifically about the House of Commons. I think, first of all, Parliament in the House of Commons has always been the home for robust debate, and that's how we articulate robust debate. Please. So anyway, that's, that's the position. Uh, she is saying that uh, anonymity is a problem because of the amount of abuse that MPs, uh, but it's not just MPs, is it? Because it's also the BBC. So here's uh, Mariana Spring on the BBC this morning. I get abused and threats online. I get abuse and threats online. Why can't it be stopped? Uh, and the subhead here is online abuse against women is on the rise, but why aren't the police, the government and social media companies doing more to stop it. Uh, and so although this uh, article is notionally about misogyny, uh, well, what is the real point of it? Well, it goes on to say, uh, as, so it, it mentions misogyny first as part of the program, think tank Demos carried out a comprehensive deep dive into the abuse received by reality TV contestants, analyzing more than 90,000 posts mm -hmm. and comments about them. Uh, it's perhaps a surprising place to start, but programs like Love Island serve almost as a microcosm for society, allowing researchers to compare the abuse directed at men and women from different backgrounds. Uh, their popularity also generates a lot of online conversation. So she's certainly suggesting that women are in receipt of more, uh, more abuse than men. Uh, but here's the point. Uh, like lots of account holders that send, hate, uh, send me hate, uh, he's deep into online conspiracy theories. So here we get the, the real crux of the thing. Uh, but like others, the abuse he sent to me also attacked me for being a woman. At first, he told me he didn't think his messages were that bad, but I explained they were just some of many punctuated with abuse streaming into my inbox. Uh, and uh, 
Then it also goes on to say they also referenced extreme ideologies. Uh, that includes the incel movement, an internet subculture that encourages men to blame women for problems in their lives. It's been linked to several acts of violence, including recent shootings in Plymouth in the UK. So this is very much uh, building a narrative that we're getting a new form of extremism coming along. It's generating lots of hate uh, and, uh, and violent uh, in many cases as well. So this is the, the narrative that's being built. Uh, and then we've got this article from Reuters, Welcome to Britain, the bank scam capital of the world. And your first glance, it looks like it's all about banking fraud uh, and, uh, and how bad it is. I mean, we have to say that uh, everybody in, in the UK column office seems to receive quite a lot of uh, scam text messages on a regular basis, you know, uh, whether it be supposedly from HMRC or from uh, various uh, delivery companies wanting to rearrange delivery, but there's a payment involved and all this kind of thing. But anyway, this article here is talking about uh, giving examples of, of a woman, for example, who within minutes of entering her credit card details got a call from her bank telling her fraudulent transactions were being made uh, the next day. Uh, someone from apparently from the Financial Conduct Authority was calling to say that they were pursuing criminals, uh, but it wasn't really somebody from the Financial Conduct Authority and the, this person ended up losing £200,000 from their bank account. Um, but actually, when you get further down the article, we find that this is yet another uh, example of uh, bad behaviour online and how we need to really lock down uh, the online world in order to prevent this bad behaviour. And so, uh, and it's all linked to extremism again. And so I just want to once again remind everybody of this article that Ian Davis has published a few days ago on the UK column website, uh, entitled uh, Blaming Anyone Who Questions the COVID-19 Policy for a New Wave of, of Terrorism. And it takes uh, everybody through a timeline uh, leading up to the present moment. Uh, obviously, this was published before the David Amos incident, but showing how this narrative is being developed. And David, it is in increasingly apparent that every opportunity is being taken now. It doesn't matter what the event is. Every opportunity is being taken now to somehow link people that are critical of government policy, whether it be COVID-19 or uh, environmental policy or whatever it happens to be, link that to a new form of extremism uh, and, and link it to, to events that are happening on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes, and this is very worrying. I mean, you covered the Priti Patel. She's talking about removing anonymity. Now, there's, there's a thing called the law, right? And we should follow the law. And what does the law say? Well, the law says you can remain anonymous in the public square as long as you're behaving lawfully. It's only when you behave unlawfully you have to give you details. Surely the same should apply in the virtual public square, right? In other words, if people wish to remain anonymous, they should be able to do so. There are many people with many good reasons for remaining anonymous, a lot of them to do with if they told the truth in this present environment. Under their own name, they would lose their job, their home. They, they, could, they, they are being intimidated and forced, in many cases, to remain anonymous. So I, I don't think that, that Pretty Patel should be talking so so flippantly about removing that protection. Uh, and as for uh, Mariana, misogyny is, just because women are being attacked doesn't mean it's misogyny. It, it, it's, it's by whom and for what reason. I would have to say my experience uh, is that women do receive different forms of abuse online. And in some cases, uh, 
worse abuse and it's more aggressive because, because it's a woman. Right? Because a man will tend to respond much more robustly and a woman will tend to be intimidated and people exploit this um, and, and to, to silence people that they, they wish to silence. So I think that's true. I'd have to say Mariana's not the best example because whenever she's quoting examples, a lot of the things she's quoting are valid criticism of her position and she's 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 describing it as online hate, and what she's actually seeing is online examples of her losing the argument, and she doesn't seem to be too good at spotting the difference between one and the other. So she's not a good example, but I I would say that the the abuse that women uh, come in for online is of is of a different nature, and it's it's volume. I mean. We, as as a, as a man going online, I will be used to being attacked with. Um, sometimes violent sexual Im imagery, sometimes much of it homosexual and much of it threatening, right? And it and it doesn't bother me at all. And a woman might get the same sort of thing, and it might be it might bother her, and she's probably going to get uh, a much greater uh, amount of that type of abuse. And and it is a problem, but um, it has to be a, it has to be approached surely by upholding the law and not simply rewriting the law. Uh, well, indeed. Um, okay, well, let's move on then. Um, and uh, well, Coronavirus Act, uh, of course, uh, that was uh, originally became legislation in March 2020. It's been renewed in September and then in March 2021. Um, and the question is, will it be renewed again? Well, it's well overdue for being renewed. Um, and uh, well, of course, the House of Commons has been closed uh, for the last few weeks because it's conference season. So they get an extra summer holiday each year. Uh, let's just remind ourselves a little bit about the Coronavirus Act, um, because many people have forgotten just how uh, horrendous it is. Um, so uh, it was allowing for things like emergency registration of healthcare professionals. It was allowing things like temporary registration of uh, social workers uh, and emergency volunteers. Then there were things like mental health and mental capacity. So they, it allowed things like uh, the detention of, and treatment of patients with uh, alleged uh, mental health problems, uh, which normally would have required two doctor signatures, uh, only a single doctor signature uh, as a result of this legislation. Uh, health service indemnification, so it was cover against uh, negligence claims arriving out of treatment for uh, COVID-19 patients as a safety net where there's insufficient alternative cover in place. Uh, then the things like uh, registration of deaths, uh, the re relaxation of the requirements around that, um, and uh, certainly no requirement for any kind of inquest and any uh, accurate assessment of whether somebody was uh, dying from coronavirus or not. Investigatory powers, uh, there were very much a relaxation of the, the limitations on the state uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, data gathering and so on, uh, and also around fingerprints and DNA profiles uh, and a whole host of other things. So anyway, they're back uh, in school, the MPs back in school today, um, and uh, but they don't uh, actually debate this until tomorrow. So the motion is tomorrow, uh, Tuesday the 19th of October. So you've got 24 hours if you want to contact your MP about this. Uh, there is also a petition online uh, calling for a referendum on the uh, in the United Kingdom to abolish the Coronavirus Act. Well, prior to that, uh, you might want to sign that, but prior to any referendum on that, the first thing to do is to co contact your MP if you think that the Coronavirus Act should not be renewed and make sure that it isn't. 
uh, because tomorrow is the day. And if it is renewed tomorrow, I mean, aside from the actual uh, dr draconian, draconian enabling legislation in the Act itself, of course, there's been a host of secondary legislation uh, generated in the past 18 months as well. Um, this Act really needs to be gotten rid of. There's no need for it. Uh, and David, uh, uh, there's still, as I say, 24 hours for people to contact their MPs and make sure that they're voting against. Well, yes, and this is very worthwhile because even if the even if the MPs decide to back this once again, uh, they should do do it knowing that there is a, a a huge groundswell of public opinion that sees it for what it is which is fascism, which is totalitarianism, and is for a, a, an attack on our liberty completely without any justification on medical grounds. Um, yes. Now, David, uh, I take it you're aware that uh, as of today, um, the, uh, the requirement for a vaccine passport in Scotland is, is uh, there in legislation. Um, so the Scottish government's vaccine passport scheme is enforceable as of this morning. Uh, nightclubs, other large events, some football matches, uh, are going to be required to check vaccine passports on the way in. Uh, they were given these uh, organizations a 17 day period of grace, uh, but that's now expired. So uh, anyone with two vaccines uh, can download uh, evidence that they've had their, uh, their two vaccines or get a certificate with a QR code on it. Uh, and uh, that everyone over the age of 18 is going to be required to show that in places like nightclubs, adult entertainment venues, unseated indoor events with more than 500 people, unseated outdoor events with more than 4,000 people, uh, and any event with more than 10,000 people in attendance. Uh, so there you go. I, I presume you are well aware of that, uh, uh, but uh, certainly the media seems to be suggesting that lots of people in Scotland had no idea. Um, well, they might be right. I mean, the, the uh, this was... This was brought forward by so many things from the from the Sturgeon government was a lot of a lot of fanfare and then then there was a, a realization that that nothing worked so there was a pause uh, and now it's it's been rolled out um the, essentially the essentially they were allowing some of the opposition to die down and then hope they'd be able to roll it out later and get less political flack for it. I'm not sure that's going to be the case. I don't think they've solved uh, many of the problems. The Nicola Sturgeon's administration has a big problem with definitions uh, because this applies to nightclubs but not to bars. And the definition of a nightclub as opposed to a bar is entirely missing in law. So um, <laughs> the, the, this is just one of the examples of areas which are going to be very fraught. Um, Will people actually comply with this? Uh, I don't know. Will uh, nightclubs and other venues uh, comply with it? It ultimately is up to the people. If we are prepared to accept, um, show me your medical papers before you, you enter this venue, if we accept that, then that tyranny will be imposed upon us. If we say, say under no circumstances are we going to do any such thing, then it will fall. It is, as is so often the case, up to us. Uh, indeed. Uh, but uh, now in Wales, uh, of course, they have also have this kind of uh, situation, but people are also required to provide a negative test result before they go to venues. Uh, but uh, Hamza Yusuf, uh, uh, I don't know if you saw what he said here, David, but he basically said that they aren't going to do that just yet, although they're not ruling it out. 
And he said that the problem is, or he said the reason we haven't started in that place is because uh, there can be uh, enormous flaws with unsupervised uh, lateral flow tests. So basically, we don't trust the public. Yes, yes, he doesn't trust the public. Well, that's, that's mutual. We don't trust Hamza Yusuf. Um, the the flaws of the lateral flow test, I seem to remember were illustrated, and we, we showed this in the news all oh, about a year and a half ago, as an MP in, I think, the German parliament um, did a lateral flow test live on the house of, uh, on the floor of the, the parliament building and showed that his Coca-Cola drink uh, tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, so, yes, I think, Hamza, there are some problems with the test. Um, and there are, of course, problems if you trust people to then simply upload the results. So, Hamza's not going to allow that. So Hamza's going to then say, well, we are going to have to have some sort of uh, authoritarian oversight because how can you trust the public at all unless there's a, a, a state official watching their every move for an organisation like the Scottish Government? This is a big problem. Uh, yes, and I just want to highlight an article on the UK Column website published yesterday uh, via Alex, uh, Dutch campaigner, government track record does not justify trusting them with uh, COVID passports. I recommend everybody reads this. Um, uh, basically, uh, if you remember, Alex reported at the beginning of the year that the Dutch government had had to resign en masse because of a scandal over uh, child benefits payments where, where the government was accusing people of fraud uh, over child benefits payments when in fact it was uh, a, a, an administrative problem with the government itself. Uh, and uh, so in light of that, uh, this article very much making the point that uh, uh, the government probably can't be trusted in this area. In fact, no government really can. So uh, uh, I recommend uh, people have a read at that and share it as appropriate. Indeed. Um, well, quite often we get sent film clips from things that have happened some time ago, but uh, we haven't seen them and or they may be of particular significance, but against the backdrop of what we've covered in the UK column news so far today, I think this uh, little film clip, I'm just going to show stills from it, um, but it's back from February 2021. Police called for refusal to wear yellow sticker at Morrison. Uh, it's a little film clip, I think it's about seven minutes long. And uh, a gentleman who's shopping is accosted because he's not wearing a face mask. And he's told by the staff that you can see on screen that uh, he does need to wear a yellow sticker because he doesn't want to wear a face mask. And he argues through his case as to why he's entitled to be in the Morrison store without a face mask. But he really objects to being told to wear a yellow sticker. Uh, and the discussion goes on for a few minutes until eventually it appears that the police are going to be called to intervene in this uh, situation. So encourage people to have a look at the clip. This is where we have now got to in UK. And remember that this is back in February. So we've progressed a lot in the wrong direction since then. Um, but it's very interesting to see the comments from people about this. Let me guess, uh, this yellow sticker is in the shape of a six-pointed yellow star. This is where we are, Germany, 1930s. I'm actually shaking with anxiety just watching this, uh, reliving every time this happened to me. It's disgusting, but this is what the country has turned into. World War II was pointless. 2021, we are becoming Nazis. Wow, don't wear the sticker. You can't buy food and we'll call the police. 
this is 1930s Germany. Mm. So the public, obviously, when they're given the right information about what's happening in the country, they are putting the jigsaw together very quickly. And we've got those emergency powers uh, for coronavirus coming through again, Mike. And many people are saying, well, this is an enabling act. And they're talking about uh, Germany happening in front of our eyes. Uh, David. Uh, I was just looking at the Morrison's response back in February. Uh, an official from Morrison said, uh, we can confirm this is very much an isolated incident and Morrison and not Morrison's policy. We're sorry the customer had this experience as our store marshals are well-trained and understanding of those who are medically exempt. We're following government guidelines, note, not the law, we're following government guidelines to keep our colleagues and customers safe. Those who are offered a face covering and decline to wear one won't be allowed to shop at Morrison's unless they are medically exempt. So that's a non-apology apology, I think. Um, yes. Now, last week, David, uh, on we didn't get it on the main news programme, I think, but it was extra time was uh, the main point of this. Uh, we were talking about Let's Go Brandon. Let's Go Brandon featured largely in, in extra time uh, last week. And uh, just for those who have not picked up on this, it started with uh, an interview by NBC, the no Nothing But Sensors Network, um, of uh, a, a gentleman called Brandon who had just won a NASCAR race and was standing in front of a large stand of fans. Uh, the, the entire stand started to sing during this interview and they were singing F Joe Biden very loudly and very plainly. It was very clear on uh, the recording. And uh, the NBC's interviewer tried to cover this up by lying because that's always a good strategy. And she said, oh, they're, they're shouting, let's go, Brandon. So this, this, was, this was viewed with deep hilarity everywhere around uh, the world and certainly around America and, and became a meme because it shows the complicit, complicity of the, of the media in covering up the truth and, and supporting the left-wing authoritarian regime in the White House against the people. The people are, are protesting and the media are there to make sure that uh, if they can lie to cover up the protest, you don't know about it. So it was a very, uh, it was a very um, telling point. So uh, some of the memes that have cropped up in, include uh, AOC's famous dress, which now has the um, the phrase "Let's go Biden." Uh, let's let's go, Brandon, on it. Uh, I know that uh, that uh, Brian liked that very much when uh, he saw that on Extra Time, um, and it's it's gone very viral. So we've got a little video uh, clip here. Uh, this is from another um, uh, motor race, and the uh, there was three little children. Uh, not that one, Mike. Uh, there was three little children uh, uh, organised to to help start the motor race. Um, and uh, this is what happened. They're going to help kick this thing off. All right, guys, ready? In three, two, one. Drivers, start your engines. Let's go, Brandon. <laughs> and the embarrassed look on the presenter's face there was priceless. So we see this is becoming a meme, and it's code for essentially... No one likes the Biden administration and the media are corrupt. It says it all in one phrase. It's, it's beautiful and it's going everywhere. This next letter here is uh, from the Canadian government state. And, and what it says is, uh, 
Good day. This is a formal notification that all government correspondence must be professional in nature and approved by department heads. Where applicable, all correspondence must be vetted by the PMO for framing and message prior to public disclosure or internal distribution. Uh, further, signature block salutations. So this is what's been happening. Signature block salutations must be approved messaging and provided in bilingual format as designated by the regional guidelines. One, the use of colloquialisms or sayings with intended double meaning or offence are strictly prohibited. And well, so one a one b specifically the use of the wording "Let's go, Brandon" or any variation thereof under any circumstances is banned by the Canadian Public Service. Please contact your, your department heads um, for uh, writing references. Um, we have been informed that this will be a zero tolerance issue with management structure. This position is fully supported by the leadership of PSAC. Violation of this policy will be grounds for immediate dismissal without recourse or labour union representation. So if you say in the correspondence, if you work for the government, if you have a little joke and say, let's go, Brandon, you are gone, you are toast, you are history. Threatening people maybe isn't going to work, however. This next clip gives you an indication of how wide this is spreading. when your public officials that are meant to be there to intimidate the public into silence are enjoying the meme as well, it's certainly got legs. And the beautiful thing is, it shows exactly how corrupt the media is, it shows exactly how, how uh, unpopular the government is, and it says to both, we see you, we know what you are, you're not fooling us. Yeah, okay, thank you for that. Okay, now let's move on to the issue of uh, censorship. Uh, and uh, well, here's uh, we meant to cover this on Friday, but uh, it uh, it dropped off the the running order, unfortunately. Uh, this Big Brother watch here saying YouTube centers David Davis uh, MP speech against vaccine passports. Um, so YouTube has removed a video of former Minister David Davis MP giving a speech against COVID passports during a Conservative Party conference. This was on a a fringe meeting or a, a meeting on the sidelines of it. Uh, the video was uploaded by non-partisan civil liberties NGO Big Brother Watch. Uh, YouTube removed Davis' speech uh, filmed at the conference um, for violating the policy on, quote, medical misinformation, but did not specify which what content had breached the rules. In a notification email to Big Brother Watch, the platform said, YouTube doesn't allow claims about COVID-19 vaccinations that contradict expert consensus from local health authorities and World Health Organization. So uh, Big Brother Watch getting exactly the same treatment that... Uh, Many others have been. Well, what's fascinating about this, of course, is who the person is that was speaking. Now, sub subsequently, uh, the video was reinstated uh, after some kind of uh, some uh, amount of backlash, uh, and YouTube said that the video was immediately reinstated following a review. Uh, they said we quickly removed uh, flagged content that violates our community guidelines, including COVID nineteen content that explicitly contradicts expert consensus from local health authorities or the World Health Organization. With millions of hours of videos uploaded to our site each day, sometimes we make the wrong call. Um, so there you go, David. It was the wrong call. This is this is heartening. But you know some. This is heartening. But you know something. When it was, um, when it was Patrick Henningsen and the wrong call, it wasn't reversed. When I got my my first um, strike from 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 Twitter, that, that eventually saw me thrown off the platform as well, that was for tweeting out. Our yellow, a link to our yellow card 
data. It was simply a link to data that reflected accurately the government's own data, and that got me a Twitter ban. Right? Their policy is full of lies. The policy is we are going to silence opposition to this and we're going to operate as a political organisation. The reason that's reversed is they realised that they'd messed with the wrong person because they had stepped over a political line, not a medical or one relating to accuracy or truth. They'd stepped over a political line. That's why they reversed it. Uh, that's absolutely right. Well, I, I was just sitting here. Let's remind our viewers and listeners and perhaps uh, new viewers and listeners that UK Column, of course, was pushed off of YouTube because we reported the testimony of a lady describing the paralysis which her husband has suffered uh, from Guillain-Barre syndrome following uh, a vaccination. Um, what was the result? YouTube simply got rid of all the UK Column videos. However, that same testimony the same story about the terrible suffering of that gentleman then appeared in a lot of uh, UK newspapers. Um, we were not reinstated. So clearly this is a corrupt system being run by YouTube. Um, and then uh, another new article on the website related topic of censorship, uh, this time academic censorship. And the headline is Democracy Lost Propaganda, Character Assassination and the Campaign Against Professor David Miller. Uh, there is a fundraiser at the end of this as well. Um, so please do have a read uh, of why David Miller was kicked out of uh, Bristol University, uh, what the heinous uh, act that he did was, and of course it was criticism of, of the state of Israel, which was, uh, was the reason. Um, but uh, uh, read the article, share it, uh, and uh, perhaps David Miller deserves a little bit of support. Uh, now, let's come on to this. Now, the Financial Times has covered this and uh, then subsequently a, a number of other uh, mainstream media outlets over the last couple of days, although this, the news actually comes from uh, June or July this year, didn't quite hit the mainstream at that point. Um, so facial recognition cameras arrive in UK school canteens and the uh, Financial Times uh, saying on Monday, nine schools in the North Ayrshire, in North Ayrshire, so Scotland again, will start taking payments for school lunches by scanning pe uh, faces of pupils, claiming that the new system speeds up queues and is more COVID secure than the card payments and fingerprint scanners they used previously. It's the fastest way of recognizing someone at the till. It's faster than card. It's faster than fingerprints, said David Swanson, the managing director of CRB, CRB Cunningham's, the company that installed the systems. In a secondary, so another quote here, in a secondary school, you have around 25 minute period to serve pro, uh, potentially 1,000 pupils. So we need fast throughput at the point of sale. It's, uh, I don't know how, I mean, I was in a school of about 1,000 pupils. I don't know how we ever had lunch uh, back in the day, you know, when there was no such thing as electronic payment systems at all in school. But anyway, uh, somehow we seem to have managed. Uh, but uh, this is what the Financial Times said. Swanson said that cameras check against encrypted face print templates, which are stored on servers at the schools, and 65 school sites have signed up. Um, so here is the organization, CRB Cunningham's. Uh, their mission apparently is to help schools throughout the UK become cashless, uh, and to benefit from the numerous effects that this brings, uh, the, uh, the, the numerous effects this brings, such as uh, reduced debt, uh, food waste reduction, uh, and free school meal anonymity, to name just a few. So that's all good stuff. But if you want to get the uh, a more balanced view of what is going on here, uh, you might have a look at uh, Pippa King's blog, uh, Biometrics in Schools. Uh, you'll find that at pippaking.blogspot.com. Uh, she's been covering this uh, issue extensively. Uh, and uh, 
uh, you'll find uh, as much information as you need there. Just wanted to add to that that the um, the company itself, Cunningham's, is boasting of the fact that they're offering a lifetime service to schools. They don't want a school to be a customer for a three-year contract. They want it to be lifetime. And of course, that means that the data on the children is going into a database where their whole life progression through the school system is being recorded. Um, David, let's move on then to uh, defence. Oh, sorry, you got a comment on that first. Well, yes. And not that 97% of the children or their parents not all their parents are given consent to the new system. Pupils offer their pins. Uh, unfortunately, some have been the victim of pins. So they're supportive of the developments. Cabinet, cabinet member, a councillor, uh, for green on sustainability, said after the October school be changing to a new provider, however, service will remain the same for all of our children and young people. Anyone with a balance on the current parent pay system will have it transferred to the new system. So when they're talking about debt, they mean not waiting to get the money in from the parents, I think. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, right, David, sorry, let's move on to defence. And uh, well, some interesting defence news uh, from the uh, continent. Yes, uh, long-term viewers of uh, the UK Column News may remember this story. We covered it probably 18 months or two years ago as we were looking at military union. We said there was a plan to link a, a British regiment and a German regiment in, in, of engineers into a single unit. Uh, well, on October the 1st, the following happened. So David, for uh, those that were just uh, that are just listening, uh, that uh, was a festive occasion according to the uh, subtitles there. Uh, but it's the merging of a British unit with a German unit. And my first question is, where does the command and control lie? Well, this is it. This is the thing. Uh, so we 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 looked at the MOD website for information on this, and strangely, Mike, we found nothing. But the Bundeswehr are less secretive about it. So they've got an article here, Stronger Together, uh, Minden's first Royal Engineer, October the 1st, 
the German 130 Armoured Engineer Battalion from Minden will be reclassified to a binational German-British Amphibious Engineer Battalion 130. One company of this battalion is provided by the Royal Army as the British, co uh, as, uh, the British comrades, just like the Bundeswehr, will work with the M3 rigs. So it's, it's technically driven, they're saying here. So here, this next slide, is the organisation of the German Army. And um, when you... Uh, zoom in closely on the 1st Panzer Division, uh, we see that under uh, Panzerlayer Brigade 9, we have the Engineer Battalion 130 at, at uh, Maiden. And that uh, means that those British Royal Engineers are under the command of the 1st Panzer Division. Uh, if there's any uh, doubt about this, um, this next bit, it illustrates the thing in, in detail. It's talking about the 9th Panzerlayer Brigade, which is part of the 1st Panzer Division, and it lists the 130th Panzer Engineer Battalion in uh, Maiden, uh, reformed as a binational German-British Amphibious Engineer Battalion in October 2021. So that's uh, very much what we're dealing with. So we've had... Uh, UK troops put under German command as part of the 1st Panzer Division um, and the, the Bundeswehr is talking about it and I went to look at the Ministry of Defence um, press releases, not a word. I looked at the Ministry of Defence press office Twitter account on the 23rd of September. They were talking about uh, actor Daniel Craig has been made an honorary commander of the Royal Navy and uh, on the 7th of October uh, they were talking about the support that we're giving the Welsh Ambulance Service. And in between, when we were talking about this wondrous, joyous, festive event where we're putting Royal Engineers uh, under the command of the 1st of the Panzer Division, uh, they were entirely silent. Would you be surprised to hear? Uh, not in the least. Well, we're, we're certainly not surprised to hear because the UK column was the lead in warning um, UK public about EU Defence Union. And also saying, of course, that none of this was going to stop because Brexit itself was not real. And now we're seeing the proof of the pudding. But uh, what, what you bring to my mind, David, is that uh, we were talking a few days ago about the chief of defence staff, Admiral um, Radikin, who uh, basically was talking about navies working together uh, where one of our aircraft carriers could have American aircraft or staff from other other countries on board, and he called this blending. So we're now seeing the blending of the military into um, it's more than just a pan-national system. This is clearly working up towards the fact that military systems do not belong to, a, to one single um, nation. nation state. Um, so then the question is, David, uh, what is Project Triton? Well, if you start with uh, blending the military into one organisation, what comes next? Procurement and the industrial base. Project Triton aims to deliver a modular, scalable and configurable bridging and ferrying system uh, to enable military load classification 100 tract or, one, or MLC 130 wheeled to cross wet gaps of 40 metres. So this is an equipment delivery project. Uh, it's been run by UK Defence News, part of the MOD, uh, out of Bristol, and uh, it's uh, that starting off. And so we're seeing not only are the, the troops at the sharp end being amalgamated into a single organisation, but the entire procurement chain for bridging 
is being uh, done in the same way. Now, it struck me, why did they start there? It, it, you know, there, there has to be a reason. And of course, when I started to look again at military mobility, which is something we've covered extensively in the past, I found that the defence, uh, the, the European uh, Commission had put out, still talking about defence union, they are still using the words, although no British politician is brave enough to do so. They are still talking about defence union and they're talking about further progress being made towards military mobility, um, mobility in the EU. And of course, if you read into the document, it also says beyond the EU. So the document, which has come out in September, is the latest update report since the launch of the Military Mobility Initiative in 2017. The EU Action Plan on Mobility uh, has provided a coherent framework for ongoing um, projects and programmes, etc. So we've been covering this pretty much since uh, 2017, 20, 2017, 2018. A couple of extracts from this document, which is full of little gems, in the introduction, it says, military mobility remains the flagship area for enhanced cooperation between the EU and NATO, with effective interaction between staffs within the structured dialogue on military mobility. Um, the concrete deliverables achieved over the past year have been reflected in further detail in the sixth progress report, etc. So this is EU and NATO cooperation. So although we've left the EU, we haven't left the cooperation because we're still in NATO. Um, and in the conclusions, they say that the work on military mobility mobility leads to deeper cooperation amongst all EU stakeholders and with key partners, that means us lads, and will deliver further concrete results in the years to come. In order for the action plan to be coherent, um, the uh, possible, uh, uh, sorry, possible revisions cannot be excluded in the future, hence the next progress report uh, will be in, 20, in summer 2022 and it could consider additional measures. So they're talking about stakeholders and key partners. So that means we're still involved. Now, uh, just to finish up on this, I, I did have a little look at the issue of mobility, and I found an interesting uh, article here from the RAND Corporation, achieving global mobility, never mind European mobility. Uh, we're talking global mobility for Future Force Design 2040. This is part of the, the um, development of the UK military across all branches, this Future Force um, terminology keeps coming up. So the RAND Corporation says the Integrated Review of Security, Defence, Development and Foreign Policy, published in March 21, presents an ambitious, an ambitious vision of global Britain that has a persistent presence around the world and contributes to tackling a wide range of crises and operations both close to home and further afield. And they have a whole series of recommendations. Now, on one regard, I would like your comments, gentlemen, on why the RAND Corporation are making recommendations for how we run our defence. Um, and if you look down that list, uh, people can, can read it at their, at their leisure. But um, a couple of interesting standouts. Um, we've got... Um, um, We've got invest in strategic bases and regional hubs, so it's very much global. Um, we've got some nonsense about net carbon zero, which seems just hilarious. Um, Multi-domain integration perspective, um, so everything's to be integrated, and it must work with partners to improve access, um, and it must work in a multinational basis. So that's very much what it's suggesting. We're going to be global, we're going to be working with these partners, it's all going to be integrated, and we're going to be dealing with all sorts of threats from all around the world. 
Uh, well, the first comment, uh, the Rand Corporation, I can't remember the name escapes me at the moment, but but uh, one of the main people that, uh, that, that writes these documents, these policy documents on defence, uh, has in fact been a key advisor in the Ministry of Defence as well, even while being at the Rand Corporation. So, so we have the Rand Corp Corporation absolutely embedded within the Ministry of Defence and have had for a number of years now, pushing yeah. policy straight in there. Well, and of course, we've got to label Rand as being centre to the military industrial complex. So we're into either huge firms producing uh, the ordinance, many of them with budgets bigger than smaller nation states, or else the consultants like uh, Rand that are helping to steer policy. None of this is declared openly to the general public. David. Just the, the Rand Corporation's American non-profit global policy think tank created in 1948 by Douglas Aircraft Company. Yes, indeed. Now, let's move on to uh, economic matters. Well, we're going to start off with this because Saturday was World Food Day 2021 and the uh, Food and Agriculture Organization was hailing new momentum and energy on agri-food food systems despite unprecedented crises. Uh, so they're trying to uh, sort of describe this as being something positive, but in fact, uh, not quite, because on the same day, uh, David uh, Beasley, who's uh, from the World Food Programme, was saying this, uh, in the past year alone, 300 million more people have been plunged into food insecurity. Chronic food shortage has increased by some 150 million people. Severe hunger has doubled from 135 million to 270 million people. Uh, if we don't do something soon with a price tag of approximately $6.6 .6 billion, uh, the world will see a famine of biblical proportions. Uh, and he then went on to talk about the destabilization of nations and, of course, mass migrations by necessity. Um, $6.6 .6 billion is what he's saying would uh, sort this problem out, uh, at least to some degree. Um, and I just wanted to mention, uh, of course, Boris Johnson has just spent £30 billion, not dollars, £30 billion on track and trace uh, in this country. Uh, which there is no evidence to support uh, or to justify, as far as I can see. Uh, so, David, it does seem to me a, a bit strange uh, that the world can't find £6.6 .6 billion, uh, $6 .6 billion to sort out uh, what is being described as a potential famine of biblical proportions, uh, unless uh, the policy is for that famine to take place. Well, yes, potential famine. We've been predicting potential famines of biblical proportions since the 70s, and the only time they've actually occurred has been entirely due to human um, efforts, such as uh, uh, collectiv collectivization of agriculture, uh, other government controls, war, and disruption of supplies. Um, it's never been true that it's, that it's something that, that, that requires a huge investment to stop. It simply requires uh, the harm that's been done to the agricultural production to stop. And it's very strange to see such headlines against the constant um, policy decisions that are being made all, all across Europe to reduce agricultural output. Uh, this is uh, absolutely the point. But uh, then we have uh, the FAO also talking about their uh, food price index for September. This uh, came out about a week ago or so. Uh, and they're saying that world food prices rose for a second consecutive month in September to reach a 10-year peak driven by uh, gains for cereals and vegetable oils. You can tell that this is written by some kind of financial person because they're talking about gains. Uh, and uh, 
So uh, they project uh, record global cereal, cereal production for 2021, but said this was outpaced by forecast consumption. Um, so they're claiming supply side problems again is what's pushing the prices up. Uh, so their food price index, which tracks international prices of most globally traded food commodities, averaged 130 points last month, the highest reading since September 2011, according to the agency's data. Um, so uh, food prices rising, of course, uh, lots of other things driving inflation at the moment. Now, if we just remind you once again what Andrew Bailey, uh, the governor of the Bank of England, was saying back in July on the issue of inflation, uh, he said that our forecast at the moment is that we do expect inflation to pick up in the next month or so, really. Uh, it's been under 1% for my entire time as governor. Every opportunity I've had to write a letter to the chancellor to explain why I've had to take. Uh, we don't see that sort of, in a sense, momentum continuing forward at that pace at all. So in July, he didn't see uh, the uh, inflation rising and continuing and momentum building for inflation. Um, and so he went on to say at the moment, sorry, that's a, a repeat. Uh, but uh, just last week, I think it was uh, Hugh Pill, who's also from the Bank of England, saying that the magnitude and duration of the UK's inflation spike is proving greater than expected. What a surprise. Uh, and he went on to say, with still strong demand for durable and intermediate goods, but ongoing tensions in international supply chains, owing to transport and production dis dislocations, goods prices have risen at the global level. Uh, much of the recent rise in UK inflation stems from developments, imported goods prices that uh, reflect these dynamics, as well as rises in international commodity prices. As the pandemic recedes and the level of composition of global demand and supply normalizes, inflation pressures should subside. That was last week. So we're moving in a particular direction. So, so uh, Andrew Bailey in July saying, very short term, don't worry about it, nothing to see here. Then last week, maybe there is something to see here. And then this week, uh, well, actually yesterday, uh, Andrew Bailey uh, at, at a, on a, a virtual conference saying, monetary policy cannot solve supply side problems, but it will have to act and must do if we see a risk, particularly in the medium term inflation and to medium term inflation expectations. And that's why we at the Bank of England have signaled, and this is another such signal, that we will have to act. Uh, so suddenly, uh, they're now signaling that they're going to act. Well, what are they going to do? Well, they're threatening, or at least there's some talk of raising interest rates. Um, so David Blanchflower, though, a former Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee member, said it would be a terrible error and an absolute disaster. It could even tip the UK into recession. Um, so uh, again, David, uh, we have, well, what do we have? We've got chaos. We've got denials. Uh, we've got uh, changing rhetoric and narrative from the Bank of England. But I believe that on the day that Andrew Billy was making his comments and when we commented on it in July, uh, we showed a slight level of skepticism to the suggestion that it was a short-term thing. Yes. Yes, we did. Um, the, the idea that, that um, no one was surprised by this uh, is not true. Many people... Uh, we're expecting this to be much longer term, much more severe than the Bank of England were forecasting. Uh, we weren't fooled. Um, a couple of quick points. Firstly, uh, this uh, increase in demand for grain doesn't seem to equate to an increase in number of people. So either everyone's getting much fatter or uh, we're maybe using grain for something else, maybe like substituting for hydrocarbons. So is this simply the green agenda making food more expensive and making people starve? 
Is that what we're seeing here? Uh, and secondly, the um, talk about our, our, our interest rate hike. We've tried that before. Uh, after the Great uh, Recession, interest rates were all on the floor from tw 2009 to 2016. I remember the great uh, interest rate hike of, two, of 2016 when it went up something like a quarter of a percent. Um, and and uh, it was a very funny graph because someone put it on a T-shirt and said, I, I survived a great interest rate hike of 2016. Um, it, it, it came up to a, a very modest two and a bit percent and then went back down to the floor due to COVID. So the idea that they're going to be able to raise interest rates with the amount of debt floating around the system is laughable. It will detonate. If they put interest rates up to a normal figure, then government debt will be completely unaffordable and everything will detonate. This is the, this is the Hotel California. It's a Roach Motel. You can check in, but you can never leave. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, very good points there. And uh, well, let's just uh, briefly move on, very briefly move on to COP26. Uh, the Guardian here, we've got Andrew Ronsley, formerly BBC, or he may still be at the BBC uh, headline. Uh, the host of COP26 needs to be a master of diplomacy. Unfortunately, it's Boris Johnson. Uh, and uh, the subheadline says, uh, having promised he could save the world, there's very little time left to rescue the criti this critical summit from failure. So uh, increasingly, there's scepticism over whether uh, the summit is going to succeed. And, and I wonder why, because, uh, well, Xi Jinping isn't going to go. It uh, doesn't look like Putin's going to go, or at least there's some, uh, there's still a decision to be made. But don't worry, because Scott Morrison from Australia is going to go. Um, so at least the fascists will be there, if that's an appropriate term. Uh, and uh, Obama uh, will be there. Uh, he's also going to be there. But I'm not certain whether... Uh, I'm not certain whether um, Greta will be there. I mean, she doesn't really believe anything's going to happen, so maybe she won't bother going. Um, well, I'd, I just wanted to add, Mike, that um, BBC Radio 4 on Saturday morning, I happened to be listening to it because I got nothing better to do, uh, was um, that COP26 wasn't really going to work because the agenda hadn't already been pre-agreed. So according to the BBC, the way that this should work is that all of the key participants should have already come together and agreed the agenda, and then the razzmatazz of, of, of COP26 could be then delivered to the public as a successful event. That, and Sorry, as I listened to that, I was thinking, but isn't this the Soviet way of running meetings, that everything is pre-agreed and then you have a show meeting? Yes. So um, BBC clearly understands what should have been happening. Yes, and it's very sad for them, David, because apparently only 11 of the G20 nations, 11 out of the 20, have submitted their national carbon reduction plans to COP26. Um, and so, you know, as Brian says, there, there is no prospect of success here. But there's clearly no agreement. No, no agreement. And this is good. And uh, there is, there, you don't normally get snow in late October, early November in Scotland, but there is actually snow forecast. So let's let's all hope that comes along because if if this uh, this this is started to uh, the backdrop of unseasonal snowstorms, it will be deeply funny. Yes. Okay. Well, look, David, we'll just uh, include this final slide from you. Uh, this is this is Nicola. Now Nicola went on the BBC uh, or Times or something and had a, a long interview about um, how um, basically uh, uh, resistance is futile 
uh, and you will be assimilated. Um, that the, the Scottish independence was was going to was going to come along because the people who were um, opposed to it uh, they were dying off. So the the cartoon is here. First Minister abandons wooing no voters, and she's uh, got two badges on. Uh, one says Indie Ref two, uh, and the other one says instead of Are you yes yet? Uh, are you dead yet? So that's uh, that's the the love that's coming from the SNP. Okay, well we better leave it there. Excellent. Well, uh, the cartoons always work. Uh, so we'll be back in a few minutes on the UK column live stream. Uh, if you remember, uh, for some extra, and otherwise back at one PM on Wednesday. I would just add, if you're not signed up as a member with UK column. Would you like to do so? Because it's the numbers that count. Many people are long-term uh, devoted supporters. They're making a big effort. We want to expand. If you're watching us and you're not yet signed up with us, please consider doing so. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.